So hi everyone, welcome um, to the Mental Health Podcast. I'm here in Hobart at the Society for Mental Health Research Conference and I'm joined by Sarah Maguire, Andrew Thompson and Mark Dads who have just given um, fantastic presentations on um, the architecture of mental health research and policy. So uh, Mark, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Mark Dads, Professor of Psychology and Director of the Child Behaviour Research Clinic and the new uh, Child Mental Health uh, Clinical Trials Network, Growing Minds Australia. And Andrew, do you want to just introduce yourself? Thanks, I'm Andrew Thompson. I'm a Professor of Youth Mental Health in Origin in Melbourne and a psychiatrist. And also I'm the lead uh, for the APEX Consortium, which is the Australian Early Psychosis Collaborative Consortium. Great. And Sarah, do you want to just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah Maguire. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade, and then I'm Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Sydney, where I run the Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders. Great. Thank you all for that. Um, So you just gave some fantastic presentations, and it seems like you've all got sort of these networks that um, have some overlapping aims and stuff, which is fantastic. Um, I guess my first question, so the session was titled um, The Architecture of Mental Health Research and Policy. So understandably, you spoke quite a lot in the session about what each of your networks is going to do in terms of research and how we're going to move that agenda forward. Um, But I wondered if you could just speak a little bit about um, how that might translate into clinical practice. And I know that you did all touch on that a little bit, but I just hoped you could maybe um, broaden that out a little bit more. Who wants to go first? Uh, I'd say that Australia punches way above its weight in mental health. That's the first thing to note. We do wonderful treatments, wonderful assessments and so on. But the problem we've got is that everything we know isn't making it to the coalface. And so if you are in need, the chances of you actually getting the sort of wonderful treatments we've developed is, is, is piecemeal and it's not equal. And the research, unfortunately, is being done by wonderful researchers, but who are doing small trials that aren't necessarily connected with practice. So I think a commonality of what we're trying to do is bring these networks together to get the research bigger and better and translated into practice. Mm -hmm. Sarah, does anything you want to add? Yeah, I'd agree with all those problems. I also think that um, at times there just isn't the infrastructure within the research community to support people coming in, staying there, being funded to stay there long enough to make breakthroughs. And in certain illness groups, that's more marked than others. In eating disorders, that is really quite marked. We just haven't had the sort of consistent funding base through all of the national research funding to pull people in and retain them. And if you don't make breakthroughs in research, people don't get better. And I think that link sometimes gets lost. Great, thanks. And Andrew, anything else you wanted to add? Um, I guess maybe from a service point of view, it's sort of, um, so in Australia, the services for early psychosis is around probably around 40 services, but it's, it's relatively fragmented. There's some networks that have developed. Um, and comparing it to the UK, where there's a big network of early psychosis services. So it's one of the, the uh, challenges, but one of the um, opportunities is to try and bring that network together um, and try and um, you know, uh, get uh, the, the, the quality in the, of the care as good as we possibly can within those, those networks. Um, and there is a big opportunity to do that um, through, through some national funding. So we're excited from that, that perspective. 
great thanks and another sort of I guess taking one step back from that one thing that I picked up on in your talk so um, Sarah you were saying that actually in the eating disorders um, network you're actually not looking at translation in this first stage because you felt like it, it was a bit too much for the money yeah. even given and in fact Mark you said that you are looking at translation but it wasn't included as part of your funding you tried to sort of sneak that in because you felt it was so important um, so I just wondered, think, going back and thinking about the architecture of research, is this something we should be doing in one stage or is it something that we should be sort of separating out? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It's not that we're not looking at it. We're going to take a long, hard look at it. Um, but what we've said is, is exactly that, that architecture is needed first, that we can't just go about translation as part of a national centre um, without having a fully costed blueprint for it, because it's very expensive, actually, to get treatments from the lab to the person at scale, at scale across the system. Um, if you're lucky enough to access um, a, a high quality service, or if you're lucky enough to access a trial that's been conducted that's innovative and high quality, wonderful. But we want people to get it wherever they go across the system. We want it to be equitable. And that's actually very expensive. So what we're gonna do is we, won't, we don't wanna go about it without a clear strategy that's costed that government's on board with. And Mark, you took a slightly different approach where even though you don't have the funding. <laughs> well, it's interesting in the child area, there are some treatments that have been researched uh, for 30, 40 years now that we know work under ideal conditions actually quite well. So you've got the problem that Sarah's referring to where we, st we have to make sure we know these things work before we do the expensive job of rolling them out. But in the child area, there are certain treatments like the, uh, the programs for child anxiety are very, very strong evidence for those. The evidence for childhood conduct disorders and opposition to fight, strong evidence and so on. But only one in four or so children with those problems are getting them. So there is a little bit more of a mandate in the child area to make sure that what we already know works under those conditions is actually being delivered. So I feel that there is a role for rolling some of those out and making sure that this system is translating already, as well as developing treatments where we don't have effective treatments. Yeah, so it sounds like obviously as much as all your programs overlap a bit, depending on which populations you're looking at, perhaps they are slightly different as well. I wondered if, Andrew, there was anything specific to psychosis research you wanted to add? Yeah, I was just going to add to, to what other people have said, and Sarah is, is, is key about infrastructure. So I suppose the only thing I would add is that um, we work pretty closely with a, a set of eight services now, which is sort of the headspace only psychosis services. And so because we work closely with them, we were, were able to sort of uh, train and, and develop a model and they're using a specific model which we can, we can check fidelity to. And then we've got the infrastructure to then help with the translation uh, approach. So, you know, we can go full circle and we can say, now we've changed this, we want to have digital intervention. So, so we've, we've, we've developed that. Um, uh, so that is exciting. We want to, to, to expand that. But I guess the other thing I want to say from, and we've all said this, I think, is that within the trials that we're going to develop through networks is having translation as a key um, element. 
So our um, CTTN is a CTTN is a trials and translation network. So any of the trials that come through, we will make uh, clear that that, that um, we're not going to be endorsing unless there's a clear plan implementation and a translational plan, and they can demonstrate to us exactly how this will get into practice. It may not get into practice for, for a couple of years, but you want to see that that, that pathway to, to things getting into service. Um, and I think we'll probably obviously be keen to see things that, that will be demonstrated in services within, within a short time frame rather than a long time frame. We don't want to disadvantage those things, and we know the gap is sort of 10 to 15 years sometimes for technology, but I think it can be much shorter, and certainly these networks will make it much shorter because we'll, we'll have the capacity to do that much quicker. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you all. Um, and I just wanted to, again, I'm really thinking about um, the translational, focusing on this translational element of, of each of your networks. Um, I wondered if you could go around and say what the top key implication is of your network for, so for instance, Mark, a clinician that would be looking to treat a young person. What can your network help them with? Uh what would be the top implication for a clinician working in my area? What could help them with? It's a very interesting question um, because there's a huge divorce in child mental health between the practitioners and their uh, caring about evidence and what the evidence is. So, you, for example, you'll have a lot of clinicians say, oh, yeah, I know the evidence, but that doesn't really apply to my family. So, you know, they, so they, they see there's a real gap and they think that the evidence is conducted in ivory towers. It's not really that helpful for them. So anything that brings those two worlds together. So the clinicians go, actually, I find this evidence really helpful and it makes a difference to my practice. And also the uh, researchers are connected with the practitioners and saying, what is the problems you're struggling with? And priorities for research are coming from the families and from the clinicians themselves. So you've got that two-way street. I think anything we can do to stitch those two together better is going to be an improvement. Yeah, so really about breaking down silos again, which yes. is the theme of this year's conference. Um, and Andrew, what about you? What could be uh, the key implication for someone that was working with um, someone presenting with early psychosis? Uh, similar to, to what Mark said about you know see people seeing the importance and the integration of, of, of research and you know having a voice, so clinicians having a voice into the priority settings and a number of those things. Um, the other bit of our network is about um, uh, a, a clinical quality registry, so uh, clinicians seeing the benefit of collecting data, but that, how that relates back to the consumer patient that they're, see that, that they're seeing, so they're able to use that data in a way that's going to um, improve the, the care that, that, that they deliver to those young people and families. And that is a, is, is a, is a, um, a challenge, but I think it's a really important thing to say how important this, these outcomes and this data can be in, in, in essentially improving your care. So I'd really like to see that, 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 that change. But I know how difficult it is as a clinician to, how, to collect these things, but, and what you don't want is to collect things or see trials and then it disappear off and it not come back to you and it not, not eventuate in, real, in some sort of real world outcome. So that, that's really important. Yeah, thank you. Um, and Sarah, what would you say, um, your network, what's the key implication for someone that was treating someone with an eating disorder? 
well, hopefully lots, but I'll pick three. I agree that setting the priorities, it's so important that clinicians drive that along with others. Um, they, like people that have a lived experience of the illness, they have a lived experience of trying to treat the illness and they know where the barriers are, where the blockages are, what's working, what isn't. So in our priority setting processes for research, clinicians form one of the key voices in that process. Secondly, I think we do need an evidence-informed or evidence-ready clinical workforce. So one of the things we're thinking about using is our um, higher degree researcher workforce that are across universities and research labs across the country and seeing if they'd be prepared to go out to clinical settings and teach basic research methods to clinicians so that they're a little more informed about that research process and perhaps even want to engage in a collaboration with the local uni with a, a student or a professor in a research task. And then I think it's really important that we try to close the gap between the lab and the bedside, this translation gap that we're talking about between research and clinicians or research and, and clinical. And so we're gonna be funding clinician researcher positions through the centre to just try to physically close that gap. Fantastic, this all sounds like super exciting work and I can't wait, wait to see how all the networks pan out over the next couple of years. Um, so yeah, thank you everyone for joining me. Um, if you're here in Hobart, do come along to the plenary session on Saturday morning at 9.45 where you can hear a bit more about all these networks and how they all um, connect with one another. Uh, and if you're not able to join us in person, then do follow the hashtag SMHR22 because I will be at the session live tweeting everything. Thanks very much everyone. Mm -hmm.